It has been a, a long time since any of you can remember the Christian community in Northern Ireland across all denominations being as motivated and mobilized about any subject as they have become about the intention to impose a change to the province's legislation regarding abortion on the 21st of October of this year. Perhaps there have been other issues upon which people have marched and lobbied and written, but they are incredibly rare. This is a unique season in our province, province's history. You will have realized it's not my practice to preach topical sermons. I don't like the world to be setting the agenda for the church. I believe the word of God should be the directing agent in our lives. I think we ought to be ahead of the world, speaking prophetically, not tagging along behind reactively. But on rare occasions I have done this, I have preached on a a topic that's prominent in our society. Back in 1994, I preached on the launch of the National Lottery and a sermon reflecting on the covetousness that this would inspire. So every 35 years I do this. And tonight I want to speak on the sensitive and difficult topic of abortion, what the Bible has to say and what a a Bible-believing Christian's attitude ought to be. And much is made in in many of the debates on this subject that uh, no man has a right to tell a woman what she must do with her body. And that's a, a very fair argument. I have no right to tell others how they ought to respond in these matters. But I am charged with the responsibility to proclaim the word of God and to speak on his behalf with his authority. And I believe that his word upholds the message I bring to you this evening. In 1791, William Wilberforce spoke to the House of Commons. The issue in that day was slavery. His voice was prophetic. His words have proven true. He said, never, never will we desist till we extinguish every trace of this bloody traffic of which our posterity, looking back to the history of those enlightened times, will scarce believe that it has been suffered to exist so long a disgrace and dishonor to this country. And you can't help but wonder, will the same uh, words be reflected in generations yet to come toward this issue of abortion? Will there be generations after us who will scarce believe that such a practice would be allowed to persist for so long, bringing disgrace and dishonor on our nation? Yes, I've noted people have become very animated, very motivated on this matter. And there are a thousand other controversial, significant issues that could be addressed. So why is it that Christians seem to be so up in arms about this issue, so mobilized about this? Why are we taking to the streets? Why are we lobbying politicians? Why have church leaders spoken out directly to our politicians to challenge them? Why have we been called earnestly to pray this evening? Well, I believe the answer is that this is a fight for life. A fight for life. Human life, indeed all life, is is not an act of uh, 
evolutionary randomness, but of God-intended purpose. Genesis 1, 26, 27 tells us this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. He, God, gave us life. He breathed his life into us. He gave us worth. He made us in his own image. And he assigned us the responsibility to be stewards of his creation. R.C. Sproul, in his little book entitled Abortion, wrote these words. In biblical terms... The sanctity of human life is rooted and grounded in creation. Mankind is not viewed as a cosmic accident, but as the product of a carefully executed creation by an eternal God. Human dignity is derived from God. Man, as a finite, dependent, contingent creature, is assigned a high value by his creator. God has given us dignity. And God has given us destiny, a destiny. We are to live for his glory, and as we do so, we find fulfillment in life. Our chief end, our primary goal, as you all know, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And this God-assigned destiny doesn't suddenly become apparent after our birth, or it doesn't become apparent after we get our GCSE results, or after we get our first job. No, that destiny is ascribed to us from the very beginning, while we are being shaped and formed in our mother's womb. So we read those words from the 139th Psalm. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Jeremiah the prophet records how God had a destiny for him. Jeremiah 1, 4 and 5 says, Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God has a plan for every person. A plan that is outlined from the moment uh, they are conceived. People are set apart to serve him, to bring him glory, to honor his name and to fulfill his great purposes. When God gives us life, he gives us a dignity. We're made in his image. He gives us a destiny. We are to live for him. And he gives us a defense. God is the life giver. And he makes it clear that he will hold to account the life taker. Seemingly out of nowhere, we read in the story of Noah, his family leave the ark and they celebrate uh, God's deliverance and God speaks to them. Genesis 9, 5 and 6, these sudden stark words of warning. It seems totally uh, uh, not to do with the context, but God's word comes through and says, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it and from man. 
From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. Walter Brueggemann is one of my favorite Old Testament scholars and he comments on these verses. He says, it now stands as part of a formidable barrier against dehumanization. An old statement on blood has now been transformed into an affirmation about human life and human worth. This decree urges human enhancement and the valuing of persons. In this post-flood decree of creation, the sanctity of human life is established against every ideology and every force which would cheapen or diminish life. Then quoting Calvin, he concludes, God deems himself violated in the violation of these persons. We're in a fight for life and we fight for life because God will hold to account those responsible for ending another person's life, this person made in God's image. In this fight, we, we, re, we must recognize that if you set out to end a life for whatever reason, you set yourself against God. The fight for life and the formation of life. Key to arguments around abortion is this question of when does life begin? At conception, at at birth, or at viability? And when is the baby a person, and is the baby ever in the womb a person or not? And this is the big question for those who would promote and advocate abortion. It is that the child is not as yet a person, but only a fetus. Now, there's a lot of medical science in this. I really don't want to pursue that. But just to try and give you a helpful measure... Uh, trying to discern when does life begin according to uh, medical science. Well, I think it's helpful to think in reverse and say when uh, do doctors, when do medical practitioners establish that human life has ended? And it is in the absence of two things, of of the vital signs, of, of brain waves and heartbeat. And when these two cease for a period of time, a person is legally declared to be dead. And it seems reasonable, at least for consistency, that you might reverse that and say, well, if that determines death, well, surely that should also determine life. We know that a child has a discernible heartbeat after just two weeks post-conception, and in that time is already pumping his or her blood around that tiny body. At present, science is able to detect brain waves after only six weeks. And these Medically assigned recognitions of life are already discernible after that short time. And yet our legislation as to be imposed upon us suggests that abortions should be allowed to continue up to 20 weeks, 28 weeks. And then life can still be ended. And I make that argument because I think it's helpful. If medical profession says that's the end of life, surely that should be at least considered to be the start of life. But there's unquestionable agreement in the scientific community that life begins at conception. That in that moment that a a child is formed, there is a unique individual. A unique human exists at conception. The Bible gives us further evidence in this. There's the lovely story of Mary, now pregnant by the Holy Spirit, going to visit her cousin Mary, who is with child bearing John, who would be John the baptizer. Read this little story in Luke chapter 1. 
When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, the blessed, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And here's an amazing thing. Here we have the as-yet-to-be-born John the Baptizer responding in worship while still in the womb to the arrival of Jesus just days before conceived by the Holy Spirit. Again, to quote Sproul, he says, The Bible clearly indicates that unborn babies are considered living human beings before they're born. The weight of the biblical evidence is that life begins at conception. So this idea of the formation of life is is quite clear that medical science believes it's at the moment of conception. The Bible teaches it's at conception. So we thought about for a moment about the the fight for life, the formation of life, then finally the fallenness of life. For all the issues that feed into the debate on abortion, they all are consequences of the fall. Particularly surrounding two areas, that of sickness and sin. Sickness and sin. Many years ago, I do remember it vividly when Liz and I were expecting our first child and, and we met people and they made that, you know, that casual conversation that people say, well, you know, do you have a preference with boy or girl? And then they would always, with well-meaning intent, say to you, of course, it doesn't matter as long as it's healthy. And our blood would boil. In our arrogance and naivety, We believe that God had equipped us with the experience and capabilities to care for a child born with whatever disabilities. We were prepared to do so, to love this child with all our love, irrespective of physical or mental condition. This was our yet-to-be-born baby. And we committed ourselves to love that child, irrespective of what would befall us. But we understand that this is a fallen world and a consequence of the fall is that sickness is all around us. And please excuse me rushing through these various examples. I don't want to belittle them or dismiss their significance. And I'd be very happy if you're vexed on any of these areas to spend time discussing them with you at length. But time is pressing on. And our goal as a congregation is to ensure that we have compassion for people. And the situations that are mentioned here deserve our utmost compassion. But much is made in the debates and discussions around the issue of abortion, the plight of mothers of yet-to-be-born babies who are diagnosed with a life-limiting illness, a fatal, fetal abnormality. Sarah Yurt's tragic story will be known to many of you, if not all. And it raises to us hugely challenging issues that we do not dismiss lightly or dis- diminish the difficulties they evoke. But, but surely there has to be something incongruous, something wrong, that when we come to the answer that the best way to deal with a baby that is already discerned to be ill in the womb is to, to kill it. There has to be a better way to care for both mother and the unborn child. And and such help and assistance must be made readily available. And what about the the, the other question that's often asked, the physical well-being of the mother? 
If there has to be that terrible choice to be made between saving the life of the mother and saving the life of the child, should we not in such moments permit abortion? Except that where suitable medical care is available, that choice never has to be made. Never has to be made. If there was a threat to the mother's life, doctors would immediately perform a C-section, remove the baby, and give them both a fighting chance to survive. They would fight on independently. Doctors with decades of experience having delivered thousands of babies have never, ever had to make that decision, that choice between saving a baby's life and a mother's life. Tragically, the death of Savita Halapanavar in the Republic of Ireland in October 2012, spurred great calls to the uh, change of the abortion laws in that nation. And all of that, irrespective of the fact that the death of this woman had nothing to do with the medical staff's reluctance to perform the abortion. We live in a world where sickness occurs. We must be wise in our response. But the, the, the... Consequences of the fall are not just through sickness, but also through sin. And again, there is this very emotive cry made. What about those cases where the mother is pregnant as a result of rape or of incest? Is it, is it reasonable to expect in that situation a mother to carry to full term? Should an abortion not be allowed in such circumstances? Well, let's be very clear, as we all know. Sexual assault is a terrible evil and a heinous crime. But the truth is that it's very, very rare that abortion is sought in such circumstances. It's uh, less than half a percent of of cases. And while the, the greatest sympathy must be afforded to anyone who might find themselves in such a situation, If a child was conceived through rape or incense and then came to the full term and was delivered, became a baby, and was nursed by the mother, no one, no one would say that it is acceptable at that point to kill that child because of the terms under which it was conceived. And if it's unacceptable to kill a baby who was conceived by rape or by incest after it's born, why then does it become acceptable to do it before it's born? God's word gives us direction. Ezekiel 18.20 The soul whose sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. In Nancy Piercy's book, The Book Club's Book of the Month, Love Thy Body, she quotes the liberal feminist a number of times, Miranda Sawyer. And Sawyer wrote a newspaper article in The Guardian in 2007. And she, someone who was so pro-abortion, was shocked by her own feelings when she became pregnant. She shares this. I was calling the life inside me a baby because I wanted it. Yet, if I hadn't, I would think of it as just a group of cells that it was okay to kill. It was the same entity. It was merely my response to it that determined whether it would live or die. That seemed irrational to me, maybe even immoral. 
But the most telling part of Sawyer's article was this. She wrote, Like most women, at least most British women, I have always been firmly in the pro-choice camp because I've spent nearly all my sexually active life trying not to get pregnant. Throughout my 20s and the better part of my 30s, I did everything that was required for me not to have a child other than, you know, not having sex. And in this is the the bottom line of much of the pro-choice, pro-abortion argument. And that is that it is to protect the rights of people to have sexual intercourse without the consequences of having to care for a child. For we live in this age of moral relativism where the slogan is that everybody has the right to do their own thing. No one else can tell me how I live, how I use my body. We we see the similarities to Judges 21, where, you know, in those days, Israel had no king, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. People choose sinful paths, and to compound their sin, they add to that by dealing with the consequences in a sinful way. But we must not, we cannot live in a land where everybody is free to do as they would choose. Praise God, we thank God we have laws that don't allow thieves to do whatever they would like or that don't allow murderers to do as they would please. They are limited in doing their own thing. For we are not free agents. We cannot do with our bodies as we would choose. We cannot misuse God's good gift of sex. He has a standard that he requires us to keep. He has boundaries that he has set for us. And when we cross those boundaries, there are consequences to be faced. Commenting on James 4 verse 2, which says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. John Piper shared these hard-hitting words. We kill unborn babies. Because they cut across our desires. They stand in the way of our unencumbered self-enhancement. And we live in a culture where self-enhancement and self-advancement is God. And if self-enhancement is God, then the one who is at work in the womb shaping a person in his own image is not God. And the assault on his work is not sacrilegious, but obedience to the God of self. I believe in this matter that the world has declared war on God. And there will be hell to pay. And we must pray as we have this evening. God, have mercy on us. And we can pray with confidence. Because he is a merciful God. And to end a baby's life is not the unforgivable sin. And I acknowledge, as I have in this church before, that I am a murderer. Jesus has made that very clear. Oh, I may not have blood on my hands, but I have blood, the blood of others on my heart, for my attitudes expressed toward them. But my confidence is that there is hope for sinners. That because of the consequences of the fall, because of the sin and sickness that that has crashed into this world and brought harm to the people that God made and God loves, he showed the, the fullness of his love for this world, sending his son into a woman. 
into this world, the womb of a, a woman, not so much a, a, an immaculate conception as an inconceivable one. God did the unthinkable. He determined to crush, to strike, to condemn, to curse his own perfect, beautiful, sinless son. To put him in the place of sinners so that I, so that you, so that we might be saved. Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might be accepted through him and become children of God. Margaret's going to come and pray for mothers.